Last week we talked about two concepts. We talked about consistency and authentication, all right? And those concepts are simply this. If God wrote the Bible and gave us his divine revelation, and if God created the universe, they should be consistent. There should be no contradiction in science and the Bible if the Bible really is written by God and if God is the person he says he is. That's number one, consistency. And we spent quite a bit of time analyzing consistency last week. I was just listening to this CD. It hasn't been edited down or published yet, but next week it'll be available. I highly recommend you get that CD because it covers a lot of material that I think is never covered anywhere else, especially in churches. I think that, that we broke new ground last week, honestly. The second concept is authentication. That's the concept by which you know that the Bible is real because it makes statements that you can independently test outside of the Bible. We spent quite a bit of time last week looking at authentication of the Bible, scriptures that make predictions about science that could not be known to people writing Genesis or Isaiah or any of the other Old Testament books that talk about science. Just not possible outside of the divine intervention of God. Okay? Tonight we're going to continue with that theme. If it's true that the earth is the age that we say it is, and if the old earth view is correct, which is kind of what we've adopted after debating it, then now we come to the ultimate point, which is how we spent eight weeks building up to this. When you're talking to somebody about the Bible, the assumption that's always made is that the Bible is some, if, if it has any science in it, it's junk science, it doesn't hold up. We've seen some examples as we've gone through these last weeks of where it does, but we're gonna take the most debated part of the Bible right now, Genesis 1 through 11. So tonight's theme, if you take a look at it is, we're gonna be looking at how to reconcile Genesis 1 through 11 with science, okay? The reason we're doing that is because this is the place where when you talk to people who have objections about the Bible as not being true, you're going to find that most of the objections have something to do with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All right, Anthony, you want to take us to the next slide and I'll show you the common objections that we see. Let me make a comment about what you just said. What we tend to do in Exodus is focus on high-minded like debates. I don't think you could ever really debate somebody into an understanding of God. So what we learn is a one-way thing. When people ask us questions, I think we need to be able to respond to their questions. But I don't think that you can take the knowledge that you gain here and walk around impressing people into believing in Jesus. It just doesn't work. Now, I think you can love people into believing into Jesus. I think you can live your life in a different character, in a different style that makes people want to know what's different about you. And then you might be able to lead them into a dialogue about Jesus that way. So I guess that's a good caution for us, what you just raised, because we do focus a lot on knowledge, proof, apologetics, science, tackling tough questions. But the reason we do it is not because we're going to be able to bully people into believing in Jesus or outsmart them into believing in Jesus. People will just get stubborn and say, I don't want to know about him. It doesn't really matter. But I do believe that enough people are asking questions, and when they find out that we don't have an answer, that just doubly proves that we're bogus. And I think we should at least remove that concept away that we should have an answer. Bible commands us to have an answer. And that's kind of what we're doing. You guys know that six months ago or nine months ago, I commented on the people who'd stand around in Old Town Pasadena with the big sign that says homosexuality is a sin. And I mean, it's like a banner about the size of this thing. It's huge. And they just stand there all night long, like on a corner. And I just think like, well, I mean, I guess the statement is technically true according to the Bible, but I mean, it's is this really going to win us? Anybody is any support? Are we showing love or are we just showing condemnation and judgment? And I think that exhibits like that kind of condemnation and judgment where I wanted to rip the sign away from them. I mean, like I just wanted to run through it like one of those like, you know, <laughs> and just like kind of run down the street like, you know. But at the same time, like I felt like I couldn't do that and I couldn't even talk to those people. I mean, I, I just looked at them. I'm like, I'm sure that you guys... I don't even, I, I guess you mean well. I want to give him the best of attributes. You mean well, and somebody has deluded you in your naivety to stand here and do this, and you think you're doing the Lord's will, but, I, you know, nothing would have pleased me more than if the Lord had walked up himself and goes, give me that, and just ripped it up, and goes, that's not what I told you to do, idiots. Look, we got to admit, there are things that we do as Christians that hurt the chances of anybody ever becoming a Christian. You guys know that I'm pretty sharp-tongued about the way that I make fun of Christians, even from within the church and the things we do. Part of it is to point out some of the silly things that an outsider sees. 
you know, and I get most of my material from my secular friends who look at the church and analyze it. This last week I spent time with an attorney who's a brilliant attorney. He's a great thinker. And I was trying to witness to him about Jesus. And he came up with some of the most, I mean, these are crazy arguments for why Jesus can't be God. But it was just so interesting to listen to him because it was like, that's going to be the next objection that no one's heard yet. I mean, you're thinking it up. You're on the forefront of atheism. <laughs> but, you know, it's great because it's in that that you learn more about what we're doing that's kind of funny, you know, because they might not critique the theology very well, but when they critique our actions, they hit us dead on. You don't even have to know our theology to know the guy standing on the corner with all their judgment about homosexuality as a sin is probably not going to work, number one. And number two, I really don't think that was Jesus' method. I mean, in fact, we know it's just the opposite. They're like, hey, uh, this was a prostitute. You shouldn't be hanging out with her. And he would just be like, why are you worried? I mean, did you greet me? Did you do this? Did you do what she's doing right now in the way that she's recognizing who I am? You know, so I don't think that he would have stood by those people and said, good job, guys. You know, anyway, I think that was, it, it's worth mentioning all those things because I don't want us to ever get so high minded in our knowledge that we confuse that with either faith or love character or okay having said that let's get into some high-minded stuff the objections to genesis first of all why is there skepticism regarding genesis you know I, I like to look beneath the surface before we identify what the major objections are let's talk about why people have an objection to religious statements about the book of genesis in the first 11 chapters here's just some things to think about first of all there was always a struggle by the church to dominate scientific inquiry. Goes back as far as Galileo and earlier. We studied that in the first week. There's a struggle going on between the church that wants to always be the authority on the Word of God and scientists that feel like they have to break out from underneath that and liberalize things and show that the Bible may not be the only word. Okay? There's been a struggle that's been going on. The church made a mistake at antagonized science for a long time, so now science is almost out on a mission to disprove the Bible. And it has done so really successfully, I'll say it has done so in quotes, because it's posed a lot of good questions, not great ones, but good ones that we don't have answers to, or that we don't know the answers to. We seem to not respond well as a community, so they just presume we don't have an answer. Number two, biblical illiteracy. I can't tell you the number of people who have not read the Bible, Christians and non-Christians. There are so many people that say things to me like, I heard that Jesus never actually claimed that he was God. Like, all you have to do is read the account of his trial. I mean, it's not that hard. I can give you the verse. It's only like five verses. You could see that he clearly claimed that he was God. I liken that to somebody who says to you, don't go see that movie. That movie sucks. And you go, did you see it? And go, no, I just heard. I think we should reject people's ideas, but it's just the way it is. Most of the people you encounter who have objections about the Bible haven't read it. Unfortunately, most of the people who are defending the Bible haven't read it. So we are really not doing ourselves a lot of favors here, okay? We carry it around, little zippered pouches, you know? That's so that once we lock it up, nobody can open it, not even us, all right? Number three, there's a heck of a lot of Bible science floating around out there. What is Bible science? Well, that's the stuff that Dr. Hoven made up. Did you see that in the Young Earth debate? Like Bible science is an attempt to come up with Ways to defend the Bible through some wacky science that only some pretty weird people believe, in my opinion. Some of this, by the way, is well-meaning. Most of it is just flat-out wrong. Okay? The best example is the use of the flood as a global flood that created the Himalayas and all this. So we just analyzed it for four weeks. I don't want to go into it, but that's a great example of Bible science. Something that somebody says, I know how we could explain this. And they came up with their own thing. Wouldn't it be great if we could prove everything just by reading the Bible? I think that, that's what we want. But you know what? Unfortunately, when the Hebrews wrote the Bible, at least Genesis, God was telling them what they needed to know, not everything mankind would ever wonder. And that's where the disconnect comes. We want to be able to read the book of Genesis and say, there it is, on the third day, the dinosaurs were created. That answers my question, but it doesn't say that. And we still wonder about it. Next thing, specialization in scientific and academic disciplines. What that means is that today, if you go to a university setting, all the academic disciplines don't talk to each other. 
There's all this specialization going on, so people become one thing or another, paleontologists, maybe they're an anthropologist, maybe they're an astrophysicist, maybe they're a theologian, maybe they're communications, business. In the old days, all of these were cross-disciplines, and people had to wrestle with things like what they all mean and come up with a cohesive philosophy or science about all things together. Today, we have all the different scientists fighting each other, different things, and of course, fighting theology because they don't even regard theology as a science anymore. It used to be. And finally, I think the most pervasive reason that people attack the Bible is because if you accept the Bible as true, you've got to accept a certain moral code. Nobody wants to accept that anymore. If you believe what the Bible says, literally, if you understand what it means, you've got to run home and change your life. And nobody wants to do that. It would be easier to just say, I don't know. I can't imagine a God who would kill his own son, which is the objection I heard this week. Or the objection I heard last week is I can't imagine him creating a billion people in a country that never heard of him and killing them all and sending them to hell. So he must not exist, so therefore I don't have to change my life and stop doing what I'm doing. Because I don't think he's there. So we make the objection a condition of belief. And I think that's the number one reason people love the problems and the contradictions they seemingly find in the Bible. Because if they can discredit it, then they don't have to change their life. Okay. You saw last week, and that's why I encourage you to pick up the CD from last week, you saw last week pretty powerful evidence of how people can find and establish that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is true, and not just by reading its own words, just by seeing what it says and what it predicts, okay? Let's go to the next slide. Let's look at the problems in Genesis 1 through 11 specifically. Here they are. People often think Genesis is full of it for the following reasons. Six-day creation account. There's no way God could have created the whole cosmos in six days. Number two, the problem of Cain's wife. By the way, you could track these. Remember the Scopes trial? They almost went down one, one by one in these things, trying to discredit Christianity being taught in the classrooms in the form of creationism. Where did Cain get a wife? There's Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel. How's Cain suddenly get a wife out of nowhere? They have problems with that. The biblical account of long lifespans. How do people live 900 years old? I mean, come on, that's got to be a myth. Nobody lives to be 900. And... Who's the oldest person in the Bible? Methuselah. How long did he live? 969, okay? 969. So nobody lives 969. That's got to be bogus, all right? The biblical account of a universal flood. Again, we spent two weeks analyzing that. We're not going to go into it, but everybody says there's no way that a flood could have covered the whole earth. Adam and Eve is common parents for all of humankind. That's ridiculous. To have just two people who birth all of mankind, that doesn't make any sense. That's another myth. And finally, when you throw in the existence of dinosaurs, mammoth animals, Neanderthals, and there's no discussion of them in the Bible, they go, ah, you see, there it is again. The whole thing just doesn't make sense, okay? So tonight, all we're going to do is just walk through these really quickly. I'm not going to bore you with them. We're just going to walk through them really quickly, and I'm going to point to you where the answers are. The point I'm trying to make is we spent eight weeks trying to get to a place where tonight I could say conclusively, and you can agree from based on what we've already pulled out, that there's nothing that's incongruous about science in the first 11 chapters, okay? Let's walk through them real fast. Anthony, can you take us to the next slide? Okay, what this is, you know, look, I even have a laser pointer tonight. This is high tech. Look, what this is, is a matrix that corresponds the six days of creation. There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, and all the way to the rest area with what scientists have discovered about the order of the Earth's development of life. I'm not going to walk through it because it'll take long periods of time for us to do this. But what I want to point out is, and you can look at this on the chart, is last week we heard the testimony, at least I read it to you, of Dr. Ross, who basically became a Christian by analyzing the scientific record in Genesis and realizing that the Hebrews impossibly had nailed every single development of life event and put them in the correct order. This chart demonstrates how that works. This chart demonstrates what secular scientists believe are the correct steps of life developing on Earth, and it tracks how the days of creation event in Genesis perfectly correspond and establish, again, that these people are sitting in the desert, hanging out, 3,400 years ago or more, could accurately figure this out 3,400 years before we could get it right and put it in the right order. The odds are astronomical unless you have divine intervention. That's one of the things we talked about last week that establish the authenticity of the Bible and its testimony. Now, you know that we've spent 
three weeks, determining that the six literal days of creation means six long periods of time that cover millions of years. And that's the prevailing view that I think will eventually win the, win the day when the rest of the church catches up. But even if you're going to compress it down, they're still in the correct order. So the first objection you'll hear is that there's no way the Bible could be true. This whole creation event doesn't make sense. Well, you know what? Actually, you take that part on and it shows that the Bible is more than accurate. It's impossibly accurate. You either have to believe that somebody rewrote the Bible a few years ago or that the Bible correctly predicted all of these creation events in the correct order. The Bible is unique among all books ever written. The closest one, the closest holy book, is a group of people that are related to the Hebrews that probably their religion somehow kind of came out of theirs as a derivative, but they get the order all mixed up. They have man appearing before animals and plants and all these things, and scientists all agree life started in the oceans, plant life developed, animal life developed in a certain order. The Bible even predicts exactly the right order among mammals, how they develop, and finally the appearance of certain types of land animals and then man. And along the way, you can see there's all these little nuances of the development. There's probably 16 different events up there, if not more. And the Bible gets them in the right order. Question? All right, it's a basic point. If someone's trying to attack the creation event, most commonly the misunderstanding is they're trying to hold on to six literal days. You saw that in the Scopes trial. But once you let go of the literal days concept for just a moment and actually look at it as the other interpretation, the other, by the way, literal interpretation of the Bible, we're not trying to change the words. We're just using this, the other literal interpretation of the word yom, then you can see that it fits beautifully. I was actually told by my church that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are myth mythological. The problem with that is God tells us that his entire word, every word is inspired and true. If you're going to take a chunk of the Bible and say this part, by the way, just happens to be more of an allegory, a story, a myth, then the whole Bible falls apart. If we can't defend every word in it, then our claim that the word is the inerrant truth of God flies out the window. And the hardest thing has been in the church, by the way, the church has been divided into three camps. One that believes that the first 11 chapters have to be interpreted as a myth. That really troubles the rest of the church because they're saying you're selling out. The book of Genesis is actually supposed to be history all the way through. And it starts off saying this is the history, basically. This is what it is. In the beginning, this is what happened. Okay? It's only when we collided and couldn't explain it or it started not making sense to us that we started saying, all right, let's break down to the camps. One says it's a myth. It's not really true. It's meant to be kind of like a story, a representation, but not really all real. The second camp broke down and said, nope, every word is true exactly the way it's written. And that's the young earth view, the one that says it was six days, no matter what, blah, 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 it is, okay? And the third camp that's finally developing is the one that says, wait a minute, if you understand it in context and you look at what the words are really saying, we can harmonize science and what the words say and establish that every word is literally true. Okay? And that's what I want to walk you through tonight because the objection to the whole first 11 chapters, the first one is God couldn't have created all this in six days. Well, we spent three weeks analyzing what it meant by six days and that there were six long periods of time. It perfectly fits. Okay? But I'll tell you, I mean, you'd have to walk through those three weeks to catch up to where we are, and I'll do that with you if you want, okay? But what I'm trying to do, so you see, is every one of the objections we had on the previous screen, which we're going to come back to, is another reason why people have said, it's got to be a myth. It can't be really true. And actually, if you read into it and you explore it, the scary part is it really is true. More true than we can imagine, okay? Would you go to the next slide, Anthony? So the six-day creation account is the number one objection why it can't be true. We, of course, spent three weeks explaining how it can be. So I'm not going to repeat them, but that's just something, just put a place marker there. Second objection, the problem of Cain's wife, brought up in the Scopes trial. All right, I'm going to throw this one out to you guys. What happened with Cain's wife? Where did Cain find a wife? Where did he go, right? He went, to the, he went to another county or another village, right? And he found a wife, right? So let's get this straight. There's Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Then Cain kills Abel, right? And after he's done killing his brother, he goes to get married, which is what you normally do after you kill your brother, right? right? That's kind of like good, good like start of the day. If there's Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and Abel's dead, now Cain wants to get married, where does Cain get the woman? Okay, so Adam and Eve had other children. So who did Cain marry? His sister. You guys okay with that? Cain married his sister? 
Tell me. All right, let me give you some numbers. How long did Adam live, probably? 800, 900 years? We don't know, right? All right, good. Actually, he lived 930 years. You were two years off. Here's some numbers for you to consider. If Adam and Eve had children and continued having children for a number of years, not all 900, all right? They weren't Mormons. They were just, right? they were just the first people. If they had children for a number of years, 60, 70 years, and those children had children, and those children had children, I give you some numbers that would have resulted. By the time that Adam was 80, he would have had six children, I'm sorry, six couples that he has already birthed that could have been reproducing if they were intermarrying. And there would have been 30 people on earth, actually 30 children born out of those people for a total of 42 people. I'm gonna skip through another and a couple of numbers. By the time he's 120, there would have been 21 reproducing couples, 100 children born to them, and now there's 142 people on earth. By the time he's 160, there's 71 reproducing couples, 352 children born, and 494 people on earth. Let's skip down a little bit to the middle of his life. By the time he's 400, there are 121,292 reproducing couples on earth. Children born would have been 595,378, and the total population of the earth would be 837,962. By the way, this is not knowledge. This is not true. This is just statistics. This is if everybody had children for a number of years and then stopped, just through exponential growth, this is what's going on on the earth. Now, we know these numbers aren't true because by the time you get to 760 years old, <laughs> there would have been 8,492,300, no, I'm sorry, 8,492,300,000 reproducing couples. The earth's total could have been 58 billion people. Now, we know that not even today, we know that not even today have we ever reached numbers like that. So, it's not to show you that this was the number of people they had. This is just to show you that if they had kids for a few years and then you started adding exponential growth, that the idea of just having Adam and Eve as the only people around, you can't picture like two couple, like a couple in Glendora and their station wagon having kids and then like 20 years later, they still have the same three kids, okay? What they were ordered to do by God was to multiply and populate the earth. If they had taken that literally and done it as much as done it, <laughs> and populated the earth as much as possible, put the maximum reproduction drive going on, they could have ended up with 58 billion people. Now we know by the time of the flood, there probably were maybe a million or two or whatever. I mean, they were not listening to God when he said multiply. And God had to repeat it over and over to them, and they still wouldn't do it. And even after the Tower of Babel, he separated them, and they still wouldn't multiply enough, and he was mad at them. But I just want to point out that the idea of Cain's wife is really easily solved. We don't know how old Cain was when he killed Abel. If he was just 60, that means that Adam would have probably been maybe 80 or 100, you know, 40. There's still people, you know. If he waited till he was like 200, there's probably like six, 7,000 people on the earth already. The reason this model comes out with such an extreme number is it uses extreme assumptions. Here's the assumptions. The first child comes to you at age 40, but you have 600 years of childbearing. <laughs> that could be pretty big, okay? And you have one child every four years. You only have one child every four years during your childbearing years, which is, you know, so you have a little bit of a breather, you know? So women, stop clutching your stomachs. Like, this is just an example, all right? You guys are like, oh. All right. I think the issue of Cain's wife is a red herring. It's a stupid one. I don't think it really matters where he got his wife. It probably was his sister or a close relative. The reason that incest was not considered a problem back then is why? Because that's all there was, and the Lord told them to multiply, and their genetics were still pure. Okay, they were newly created. Their genetics had not yet caught up with them to have the problems we have today if you married your sister. Not to mention the fact that you guys could never get along. All right, all right. the problem of long lifespans. Other, th other reasons that people dismiss the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Why? Because it's ridiculous to think that anybody could live to be 900 years old. This is what God tells us. Here's how you can live to be 900 years old. You want to know the secret? Here's what God tells us. If you thought you were going to learn nothing at Exodus tonight, here is how you could live to be 900 years old. First of all, number one rule, you have to have pure genes created by God right from the beginning. Okay? So none of you inbreds, all right? Pure genes created by God, brand new, with no genetic defects existing in the population. Number two, you got to have a vegetarian diet. Okay? The Lord commanded from the beginning until the ninth chapter of Genesis, no meat. So you got to live purely on the 
on the fries at In-N-Out, Casey. Yeah? Here's also what you need to avoid. There can be, in your society, no war, no accidents. Casey, you're out there. No disease, no famine, no inadequate nutrition, no high metabolic rates, no internal oxidation and stress, no environmental stress. You cannot have, you cannot have inadequate exercise. You'd be walking around, moving around a lot. No cars, okay? No skateboards, no bikes. No chemical carcinogens. No, no protein or fatty diets that'll like help, you know, get, it, get into your, your arteries. No high caloric intake. You need to avoid ultraviolet radiation. So none of you people tanning at the beach, you whiteies and tanning at the beach, none of that. You need to also avoid radioscopic decay radiation, cosmic radiation, and a bunch of other things that might affect your DNA. Now, what I'm trying to point out is these conditions actually existed at the beginning of the creation. We have greatly polluted our world. We eat bad. We don't do all the things that you need to do. But the number one factor probably, there's, well, there's two. After the ninth chapter of Genesis, when God tells Noah people get off the ark, God decides that he's going to limit mankind's life to 120 years because it's for his own good. We talked a week ago or two weeks ago about why letting man live to be that old was causing so many problems on earth and the amount of evil man was getting himself into in 900 years. God thought, you can get in enough trouble in 120, you shouldn't be able to do any more than that, okay? There were some events, scientists look at the age of man and they look at the timing in which the age of man changed. And there are some theories, by the way, that say there was a great supernova that exploded and caused a lot of cosmic radiation on Earth and caused man's life to be greatly shortened. It's advanced by some great Christian scientists who are Christians. I'm not going to go into that. It doesn't really matter to us. What does matter, the objection is not how did man's life get shortened, because everybody can look around and realize we have short lives. The objection is, I can't believe in a book that says men could live for 900 years. And the evidence is, well, there are ways that God tells us we live in a drastically different world. I don't think that that should really be the big stumbling block of all religion, that somebody could live to be that long if they really are newly created. I mean, let's put it this way. If you believe in a God who can create a universe the way he did and create Earth in the just right environment you need to have life on this one planet out of billions, and he creates mankind and puts us on this planet, I think that it's probably possible you could live 900 years with the genes that God gave you. That shouldn't be the big stumbling block. All right. The biblical account. The biblical account of a universal flood. I'm not going to talk about this one tonight because we've talked about it for two weeks straight. Here's the perspective. Most people looking at Genesis, again, say Genesis can't be true. There's no way there's a flood that could cover the whole earth. We just spent two weeks talking about why it didn't need to. Get those two CDs. It'll help your understanding. I'm not going to go into it. But that one's easily dispensed with once you understand the flood theories and the fact that it does not need to cover the whole earth to be a universal flood, okay? Adam and Eve as common parents of all humankind. This one kind of goes back to what you were asking, and this is why I can conclusively say this. God could have created a whole host of people and just kind of threw them down there. But he tells us he created Adam and Eve, and he told them to multiply. For a long time, science was trying to prove the opposite. Science wanted to believe that if evolution takes place, what should happen is mankind as a species should appear on the scene all around the same time. Let's pretend for a moment that mankind descends from Neanderthals, okay? Which is what science wanted us to believe for a long time. If that's true, there's millions of Neanderthals walking around or some other bipedal primate walking around the earth. And as mutations happen or as whatever evolution tells us happens, suddenly mankind starts to appear as a descendant of that predecessor species. So mankind wouldn't be Adam and Eve. They'd be like a whole bunch of them just kind of suddenly appearing. And that all the race of humans would be descended from multiple sets of Adam and Eves all over the place. So that was the theory. And secular scientists began to prove this theory. The way you prove it is you take the DNA of human beings today, you figure out, you guys remember the term mitochondrial DNA? Remember that? Okay. There's small differences in mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome, and you can measure between a father and a son and between a daughter and a mother and all these different things, how much the DNA changes in one generation. By measuring that and extrapolating, you can figure out how far back was the most common parents. And did people come from a common parent or did they come from different parents? All the studies that have been done have been done by secular researchers. All the studies that have been done have been confirmed over and over. And here is the result. All of humankind came from a common pair. 
Not only that, they came up with a real conundrum in the research. Here it is. Mankind dates back to somewhere between 37 and 49,000 years ago. Man, not mankind, I should say that specifically. Man, Adam, dates back to between 35 and 49,000 years, somewhere in that category. Women date back to almost 54,000 years ago. So science has got a bigger problem. They don't care about Adam and Eve. They have a bigger problem. What would that problem be? Anybody know? Well, if the woman is older, how did women reproduce for 5,000 years without men was the problem that science couldn't answer. So, of course, what do scientists do when they have a problem like that? They redo the math one more time. So they Well, remember, they're just pegging. Like, Adam looks like he's appearing on the scene around, like, let's say, four, let's peg a date, 49,000 years ago. And Eve appears on the scene like, Eve, by the way, is just the first woman. They don't call, you know, just put her in quotes, Eve, about 54,000 years old. So they redo the research. They go back and they do more studies on mitochondrial changes, and they go to homogeneous groups like people who never intermarry, like Finnish and Neand like, like Netherlands, and certain groups that just don't intermarry. And they measure more accurately the changes. And they go back and they do the math, and it's still the same. So then they go to like these really remote people in the jungles, like people who've never seen outside people because they never intermarry because they never met anybody else. And they do the same studies on them, and the data's one more time. So they publish a thing that says it's inconclusive. We can't figure it out. We do know that this is when they appear on the scene. What we can't explain is why women seem to appear on the scene earlier than men. It doesn't make sense. They couldn't reproduce for 5,000 years. It just doesn't make sense. We don't know, so they throw it out. And of course, the people in the old earth community seized on it immediately and says, we have an answer. What's the answer? The answer is they were not discovering Adam and Eve. What they were discovering was the common ancestry back to the people who got off the ark and rebirthed society. You see, Adam and Eve and all their descendants died except for eight people. Nine, ten people? Eight people. Noah, his three sons, and four wives. The difference between the four wives is they're not related to one another, so their mitochondrial changes reflected all the way back to Eve, who is their common parent. But the four, Noah and his three sons, were so close together because they were directly related that their mitochondrial change was only one generation. So it made it look like man appears afterwards. And if you count from Adam to the flood and the way all the numbers work out or whatever it is, it seems like there's your missing 5,000 years or so. And of course, when this is published in the scientific community, they go nuts and they fall on their knees and they accept Jesus Christ. And they say, I knew it. No, they say, what do they say? Further study is needed. <laughs> further study is needed. We still don't know how this works, but further study is needed because it's impossible. And by the way, we know that flood thing isn't true because there's no way you could flood the whole earth. And they're going back to that theory again. You can see now when we spent two weeks on the flood, you guys are thinking, who cares if it's universal or not? It does matter hugely to people in the scientific community because our credibility literally floats on the top of what that flood is. Yeah. What it is is they, they know that everybody who came after Noah came from that. I mean, the measure of change is so minute at that point, they consider that the end point. Whereas between those four women, there's a substantial, well, not a more substantial difference. So they knew that they weren't the zero point. But this could almost fool you to think there's so little change at that point, there's no difference almost. You'd think that would be the pegging point. But you have nobody else. I mean, everyone is a descendant actually not of Adam and Eve. Well, yes, they are. But people alive today, if you believe the Bible, are descendant of Noah, his sons, and, his, and their wives. So I, don't know, I can trace the math for you and show you how to do it. It's in one of these books. You want to read it? Hey, look, here's a good time to do the advertisement. You know there are a lot of books that I read to do these talks. You can read them too, you know? You know, yeah, I know the only person ever in the New Song Library other than me is the dog. So you guys, you know, like this is, this is big, you know. We at least got somebody to go in there. Okay, last objection. The evidence of dinosaur fossils, mammoth mammals, and Neanderthals. Here's the question that's most commonly asked. Don't you think God would put somewhere in the creation event something as big as a brontosaurus? Would he, wouldn't he at least tell us, by the way, I created them on the fourth day, or the fifth day, had some fun with them, and then let them die out, if that's really what happened? 
Where does the caveman fit into the creation story? Like, did God really create things that look like mankind? Like, what, what's going on with them? Like, where are those things? Because this one, everyone wants to know the answer to this one. What are the dinosaurs? Where do they fit in? Anyone know? Where do the dinosaurs fit in? Before what? Before man. So they're part of the animals that are created on day five? Okay. Now, if day five is only a day long, we've got a big problem, which is, you know, what the young earth creations have. They've got to hang out with the dinosaurs walking around with the men on day six. And then Noah's got to stuff the dinosaurs in the ark to keep them alive. Okay. So you guys know we've fully made fun of them in previous CDs. Let's talk about dinosaurs really in an old earth view. Dinosaurs are hanging out on day five. Day five probably lasts anywhere from, well, if you look at the chart we had, could last anywhere from like 500 million years BC to almost 25 million years or something. I mean, it's a long period of time on day five. You have the appearance of dinosaurs and their extinction. You have the appearance of mammoth mammals probably and their extinction. We've talked before about why God would create them. We've talked about the idea that maybe the biodeposits that are in the earth, like petroleum, sand, siltstone, all that stuff, you know, coal, are all a result of fossilization. So maybe God created. Some of you have speculated that God just created for the heck of it because he liked it. And he wanted to have fun for a while and he created those animals and then he created other ones. But here's an interesting thing I want to tell you. One of the things that if you understand the earth changed over time. The earth used to spin in an eight-hour cycle. Today it's 24. It's greatly slowed down from its creation. There's a lot of things about the earth that have changed. Its atmosphere is definitely different from when it was first created. We didn't even have an oxygen atmosphere until there was enough plant life to release oxygen and create an ozone layer to keep it in there. Over time, the earth was changing, and it seems like God was creating creatures over time that could adapt to whatever the environment was, okay? We know that during the Ice Age, certain animals were thriving. I don't think the dinosaurs could have survived the Ice Age, all right? So that's kind of where the dinosaurs seemed to fit in, is he was actually creating animals in a long period of time and letting them go extinct, and they had purposes for later on, okay? Neanderthals, they are not ancestors of humans. Now, I think there's two things that goes on. The church has spent so long trying to convince the world that we only have a 6,000-year-old world. So if you find somebody who's 10 or 15 or 20 or 30,000 years old, you go, that's a caveman. That's an ancestor of man. Man probably lived 50,000 years on earth from the creation date. So a lot of ancient civilizations that we find that we think that can't be human, might be. But we know from secular research, not even from the church, that Neanderthals are not genetically related to mankind. But that really kind of brings up an interesting question. Why would God make these like bipedal primates that kind of look like man walking around the earth? In other words, if you really understand what the old earth view is, those were animals. They just kind of looked like mankind. They were not human. And even if they had some capacity to hunt and do certain things, the, the thing that makes a person human is the creation by God from the dust and him breathing a soul into that person. That's the definition of human that we have from a theological standpoint. So why is God creating these things that walk around and they might even hunt and, and have caves and do stuff? Why does he let that happen? Is he just kind of like preparing the way for man? Like he's like, hmm, let me see what I want to make man look like. Let's see, I'll try this out and see how it looks. Is he rendering? What's he doing? Well, anthropologists and biologists think that one of the functions that early primates that even look like man or bipedal primates did that really helped is they taught animals to fear in an ever-increasing hunting kind of creation. I don't know if that's a good answer. It's the best one I've been able to find through my research. Yeah. Yeah, basically, if you want to boil it down to it, here's the theory. At the time of the creation, or it seems that from the fossil record we have, there were about double the amount of species that exist today. Since the introduction of man into the earth, we've already killed and, and pushed into extinction half of the species. And it's in the order of something like 10,000 species have already gone extinct since man has been introduced. Okay, and there's about 10,000 left. Some people theorize, and it's just a theory, that maybe what God was doing was trying to introduce into his creation a natural way for these animals to develop defense mechanisms against an ever-increasing hunting-gathering type of creation that he was introducing into the creation. Most of the Neanderthal fossils that we find predate man's existence and have completely different 
I mean, we, we, you guys heard Dr. Ross in the debate talking about their nasal capacity just cannot be human. We talked about the possibility, they, they've done genetic analysis and they just differ chromosomally so much from humans that they just can't be, they, you know, they've conclusively established, at least the secular people have conclusively established that no part of the Neanderthal DNA is included in humans and that's just, when they're not ancestors of ours. I don't think they were around the same time. But if you believe the young earth creationists, remember, what was the young earth creationist response to what is a Neanderthal? What was their response? It was a, it was a disease that occurred after the flood. So they came off the ark, they reproduced some people, and they turned into Neanderthals. That was the young earth view. All right? So they actually have Neanderthals walking around as little as three to four to 5,000 years ago in their minds, right next to the brontosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus Rex that came off the ark right after him, okay? Totally. That's a good question. A lot of people claim that in Job, it says that there are large beasts and that means the dinosaurs or a reference to them or something like it. Most people who look at that text say that's, that's a close but not good enough because the Hebrew word there talks about, a, it, the literal translation of the Hebrew word is bohemoth. And it really is better describing a mammal than a reptile like a dinosaur. I mean, the word literally describes a large mammal. Huh? You know, it could be like the woolly mammoth, like the mammoth mammal. It could be. But I think it's more likely, it's probably something that man was already familiar with, like some of those massive crocodiles or some big, huge, you know, some... Yes. Now, if Neanderthals are a species of something, they'd be a species of animal. Not animal-like, they have to be like crawling around on their hands and knees. I just mean the definition of human implies both the creation from the dust and a breathing of the soul by the Lord to create us in his own image. So we, may, we are a separate creation of God, totally different than anything else he's created before and created uniquely in his image. And that's why we can't say that we're related to anything else because that's a new start. It's a brand new thing that he's done by infusing the soul into a dust-created animal or human or whatever you want to call it. Okay, let me tell you this. There are people who believe that God created bipedal primates. They somehow evolved into something and then at some point he intervened in history, breathed the soul into them and they became human and that was the going on. I will tell you that old earth creationists and young earth creationists actually agree that that's not true. That biblically, there must be an intervention in a new creation that is totally different from anything else God has created. That he does not, it's, we're unrelated to any other creature. And that's one of the reasons that evolution poses such a huge issue for the church. And it looks like now the tide is turning because evolution is coming up increasingly short on trying to find any ancestor for mankind. And the church has long maintained there is none. And we dare you to find one. And of course, they, you know, Neanderthals look so much like man, they go, aha, you see, that must be it. But then when they do their own research, they go, no, no. They're genetically unrelated. The real issue here is they're looking for our ancestor, in other words. So evolutionists thought they had a lead on the Neanderthal. It just turned out that it was too different from us. So their mind right now, if you asked them straight out, they're still looking for another ancestor. They know that man must fit into the picture somehow if their theory is to hold true. The, and they'll just tell you, we just haven't discovered the correct ancestor yet. You know, we know it's not an ape, we know it's not a monkey, we know it's not an animal, but something out there led to this. And we just haven't been able to connect it yet. So to be fair to evolution, it's not like they're nuts. I mean, they're just out there saying, we need more study on this. But every day their theory is getting harder and harder to prove, like I said, not because not only can they not find the ancestors, but because of that whole mathematical model we put in that the earth is just too young in billions of years to allow for evolution to occur. And that's the biggest problem that they have now admitted, but they claim either you know, an alien race impregnated the earth with life or that the earth and the universe keeps collapsing and expanding over other billions of years that we can't identify. So either one of them is, you know, but like if you take the Big Bang Theory, they think that, okay, sure, this universe is 14 billion years old, but what about the previous ones where it collapsed and it banged out and it collapsed and it banged out and, and it's been doing this for so many billions of, of orders that maybe the universe is really thousands of billions of years and we just have only known about the last 14 billion. I think I started this whole talk by saying, let's not be high-minded, and we dived into all this. Here's the summary. I think 
you'd be selling out the Gospels, be selling out the whole Bible message, you'd be selling out every word that Paul said about the Bible being inerrant and true. You'd be selling out God and what he intended to do with our book, the Bible, by taking the first 11 chapters and saying, I think it's just an allegory or it's a story or it's a representation or it's a myth. The harder job is to say, I'll defend every word in that book. Now, there are some hard things to do. There are some things in there that are not easy to defend. I'm not saying that science is going to solve all of our problems. But science has advanced to a place in your lifetime, my lifetime, that's unique among all ages. That we actually not only know enough about science. I mean, think about this. You go back 50 years, just 50 years. We didn't even know about the Big Bang Theory, really. So when you look in the Bible and it says and it predicts, like Isaiah and 11 other verses in the Bible, that the heavens are stretched out continuously... We probably didn't understand how brilliant the Bible was as a work of science explaining the Big Bang Theory because we didn't even know what it was. The genetic research I was talking about about Adam and Eve is only being refined in the last 10 years where these teams are being able to measure the difference in mitochondrial DNA changes over time. That didn't exist. We're kind of in a unique era where the questions against the Bible are growing, but so is the evidence that it's actually true. So it's totally an error in my opinion to take a position that we can just chuck the first 11 chapters because really nobody cares. I think as soon as you do that, you might as well chuck the rest of the book with it because now you decided which pieces you believe and which pieces you don't. And then you can start walking through the Bible and going, well, okay, this part over here, I don't like this part. Just rip that out and take it out, you know? How about, no, I didn't really rip it. <laughs> or this part over here about this moral thing that I don't want to follow, I'm taking that out, you know? And that's exactly what we're fighting against every day in a relativist world. It's hard enough to stick to this book and say every word is true and Jesus is the only way. That is such an unpopular position. But truth is never very popular. I also think it's wrong to take the total young earth view, but that's up to you to decide. I'm not going to influence you too much on that one. That one's kind of a little nutty too. But that's been a reaction to all the questions that can't get answered. They just finally just, no, oh, it's true. And I think what's really harder to do is to investigate. I'll give you an example. The answer about why did bipedal primates appear, maybe to scare the animals off, that to me sounds like a weak answer. I'm sure we'll find a better one eventually. But the idea that we know that we should be looking for one as opposed to just like closing it and saying, ah, it's probably not even true, it's just a story, is I think the right mindset to take on. Because over time we discover that God is so amazing and he's revealed himself in ways that we could never imagine, we could never predict. Nobody could have written that book and been right about all those things without it being divinely inspired, okay? So where are we going next? on our journey. I want to wind down our series on science in a couple of ways. I want you guys in the next week or so, even tonight, to tell me what questions still remain about the science that we've looked at, okay? You guys know we've walked through the days of creation, the controversy over six literal days, long periods of time. I'll make that chart available to you next week so you can actually see how the days line up. We've walked through the flood, okay? We've done a little bit of these other objections like the age of people and Cain's wife and all those kind of things. But I want you to think about if there's something we haven't covered that you think is a common objection to science in the Bible, I want to know what it is so we can cover it and wrap it up. Okay. This has been a long series, but I think for the first time, some of you are starting to see that it does actually interrelate together, and it does make sense because people want to know the book is true before they'll believe in anything in it. And we need to be able to defend some of the stuff, at least to point people to where they can find the answer if you don't have it readily. Any questions before we close? I know tonight was kind of disjointed. Yeah. Okay, let's hear them right now. This, let's hear them right now. The first one is about the races. I don't doubt, first of all, in the Neanderthal one, that if the theory is true that God was creating ever-increasing species that had characteristics that were going to lead to what mankind would actually be able to do, okay, I don't disagree with anthropologists that Neanderthals were capable of societal living and those kinds of things. In fact, if you look at animals, just regular animals, you look at like chimpanzees, they have societies, they have hierarchies. If you look at like, and I mean, look at, you even look at like the, the hierarchy in like, like gorillas, okay? If you look at the hierarchy of gorillas, like they have like the, the leader of the whole thing and they, they all, I mean, they, they, yeah. I mean, if you look at those things, like they know how to interact with one another. There's a certain manner that you, you do. I mean, they might not even be as advanced as the Neanderthals were, but as you look at them, you say, you definitely are not just like a dumb creature, like a goldfish in a little bowl, like just goes around all day, you know? Right, okay, I don't disagree. All right, now here's how the races work. <laughs> I'm going to launch it on a half an hour discussion on the race. 
This is, I'll make it as simple as possible, Jill. Here's how the races work. When God sent people out at Babel, okay, this goes back to man not, create, not procreating and not filling the earth, okay? God wanted people to spread out and procreate. And, they, and four times he commanded them to do it and he kept refusing. So finally, what happened at, you know, you know the story of the Tower of Babel? Okay, so they build the tower and they say in the Bible expressly, the reason we're building this tower is to show our accomplishments to the world, to celebrate them, and so that we do not have to spread out across the earth. They literally told God, we're building this tower so that we can disobey you. God's like, that's it. I've had enough. He confuses their language and he sends them out into different areas. Now, this is where the speculation begins. This is the only answer I've been able to find. As they're geographically separated, some people believe that just the way that God intervened and confused their language, he also added physical characteristics to them that made them different. Okay? Now, the reason that normally I would call, I would call eh on that answer, but the researchers that study race among people are really confounded by this because there is not enough time, even if you allow for evolution, for there to be that much of a difference in skin tone, color, and racial characteristic features among humans. You'd have to have lived a couple of million years probably to get to the kind of differentiation among humans. And it appears that in the short span of about six to 10,000 years, whenever Babel occurred, maybe it's 25,000 years, where however far you put it out, that is just too short of a time for people to alter through mutations, to have skin color differentiations and feature differentiations. And both secularists and older creationists admit this. So in other words, they're saying, we know it's a lame answer to say that God somehow intervened to create different racial characteristics so that people really would separate. It, I mean, they're admittedly saying it sounds lame. But to be honest with you, we can't come up with any better answer through natural processes. It would be almost impossible. And that's one of the reasons that even if you ask an evolutionist, they say, oh, that's easy. That's because we've been around for millions of years. <laughs> like, but that, you're, you're, you're putting the, the presumption back into the question again to try to figure it out. And that's the thing is if you ask them, yeah, but it, given 50,000 years of mankind, could that much differentiation occur? And they would say, so that's one of the things people say, is it divine intervention? Now, if it's divine intervention, why would God do that is the question. And the best answer I've been able to find is, and again, I don't like this answer, but this is the best one I've been able to find. God has a reason for separating people. Primarily his reason, according to him, is that if people spend time together and they live 900 years, they're going to turn into such an evil population, I have to destroy them. For some reason, man living together and living for long periods of time turns man so evil that God has to kill them. That's what he said to Noah. That's why I did what I did. That's why I'm going to limit your life to 120 years old. That's why I'm going to separate you by language. I'm going to make you live in different continents and different places. And you're just going to scatter. And the way I'm going to scatter you is by changing your language. And according to these people, I'm even going to change the way you look so that you'll gravitate towards people who look like you and separate and scatter for your own good. Okay, that's something that maybe God understands that I don't. But I will tell you the funny thing is in the Bible, in Genesis, as they go down the genealogy of people, there's a, one guy named Peleg in there. And it says during his lifetime is when, and then the equivalent language is when the land bridges disappeared. So you know that whole theory about Pangaea and the earth separating and moving around. It, it appears that even in the book of Genesis, that people knew that there were ways to go around from the different continents that existed. And during his lifetime is when those were disappearing and people were stuck in different parts of places. I don't know. A lot of high-minded science, probably, you know, more than we can package in tonight. But that's the closest answer that anyone can come up with is that somebody intervened to do that because natural processes can't do it on its own. Yeah. And by the way, it worked if you think about it. Like if God's idea was to not, in, like not to intermingle and intermarry people for many, many years, I mean, look how long it took. It wasn't until the 20th century people even dared to intermarry. You know what I mean? So maybe if that's what God's plan was for our own good, which I don't really understand why that's for our own good, but maybe he does, it worked. I mean, for thousands of years, people stayed separate in their own people groups. All right.